The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It can be found on page 1 in the Black Bibles. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mara, for reading. And thank you all for being here with us. It is a joy to have you joining us here at Christ the King this morning. My name is John Trapp. I'm the senior pastor here, and just want to extend a welcome to all of you. Also want to give a quick shout out and thanks to Brooks Harwood, who preached for us so well last week. It was a huge blessing to have him here while I was gone. Um, Brooks, if you don't know, is the campus minister for uh, Reform University Fellowship, also known as RUF, at the University of Houston. It's the campus ministry of our denomination. And if any of you have college students in your life, or maybe you're a high schooler who's going to be graduating soon, I really can't encourage you enough, uh, wherever you go to school, to, to keep your eyes peeled for an RUF organization there. RUF sends an ordained minister from our denomination as an evangelist to that college campus um, to shepherd covenant children of the church, but also to extend the good news of Jesus to the college campus. It's a wonderful ministry. We're really thankful to have Brooks worshiping with us regularly in our midst, along with some of his students. And uh, it's a joy to to get to support them, but also to be encouraged by Brooks last week, um, bringing the word to us. Um, It is especially wonderful to have any of you first timers here with us. One of the things that we do during this point in our worship service is we gather around God's word and we think that all of God's word is, uh, is for our good and that it shows us our need for him and also his gracious provision in our need and including this very first page of the Bible, Genesis 1. So let's ask that the Lord would bless us now as we study his word together. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks and praise for all that you have done and are doing. And Lord, I pray that you be with, um, with everyone here today, no matter where they are in their walk with you. I pray for those who, who don't believe in you and thank you for bringing them here. Um, I pray for those who maybe are, are feeling tired or bored or cynical um, or skeptical. I pray that you would meet them where they are. And Lord, I pray um, that uh, for all of us that you would um, help us to see more clearly your grace and your power and your goodness now as we study your scriptures. And we pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are going to look at Genesis 1. And uh, for the, I guess for the spring and throughout the rest of the summer, we're going to go through Genesis 1 through 12 together as a church family. And man, there is so much to unpack in those first 12 chapters of the Bible. I want to kind of say a disclaimer on the front end. I'm not going to be able to maybe talk about everything you want me to talk about. (laughs) But I'm going to try to hit a bunch of stuff um, because there's a lot packed into these opening pages of the Bible. I'm really excited to to study it with you all. Um, 
one of the things that we need to keep in mind, I think, as we look at this passage and the passages to come, is that this was originally written to Israel um, from the t- during the time of Moses. So in the New Testament, whenever this part of the scriptures are referred to, they just call it Moses, Moses and the prophets. You know, that's, that's kind of how New Testament writers referred to the Old Testament. And so these first five books of the Bible, also known as the Pentateuch or the Torah, they were given to Israel by Moses um, during a time when Israel was in need of, of some encouragement. Um, Israel had, was, was in Egypt in slavery and then came out of Egypt and was in the wilderness. That's where Moses died with Israel, in the wilderness. In this time that's described as, as a time of darkness, a time of wandering, before they had gone into the promised land. And it was during that time that Israel was kind of saying to themselves, man, Egypt was pretty great. We should go back. They eat well there. There's stuff like we're not gonna, we're not gonna die out in the wilderness. Like let's go back to Egypt, or they or they were saying things like like looking to other the other gods of these other nations. That the grass was very much greener uh, in the other nations' fence to Israel, and so it's it's during that time of struggling and doubt that Israel needs to be reminded and grounded in the true story that they're living in. And that's what I think we need too. I mean, we all have moments of, of doubting or of struggling or of wondering. And I think that it's God in his kindness, he's given us his word so that we can find something steadier than our feelings and something steadier than our perceptions. We can find his truth and remember the true story that we're part of. And so that's what we see here at the beginning of the Bible. It's the beginning. And it begins with God, not with us, which maybe we would have chosen that if it was up to us. But it doesn't begin with us. It begins with God. And so we're going to look at three things that we see about God in this passage. First, He's the pre-existent God, the pre-existent God. Second, the powerful God. And then third, the present God. The pre-existent God, the powerful God, and the present God. All right, let's go. So, pre-existent God. In the beginning, God. That is how the Bible starts. In the beginning, God. In other words, you and I are not the center of the world. We're not the center of the universe. And the center of the universe doesn't begin with us. And, and that's, I mean, culturally speaking, that's kind of, uh, we don't always act like we believe that. Um, I was reading in, uh, looking at an old Time Magazine article in preparation for this, and it was describing some of the, dif- the different generations that are alive today. One of them is the baby boomer generation, the boomers. And um, the boomers were referred to as generation me. Generation me. Some boomers here. Well, I, I'm not a boomer. I'm actually a millennial. Sorry, you have a millennial pastor. It's true. I know. I'm a millennial. And my generation in that article was referred, referred to as generation me, me, me. <laughs> and that's not like me, 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 but like me, me, me. Right? That's my generation. And uh, to illustrate this, they said that when, uh, when boomers were, born, were being born in America, the average American household had about one to two photographs or pictures of the family in the, ho- in the entire house. Today, the average is 85. 85 pictures of ourselves on the walls, on our tables, on our dressers, because we love me, right? 
we all love ourselves and we love good pictures of ourselves. Those are the ones that we put up, right? The really good pictures of ourselves. And uh, this is no surprise. Um, Our culture puts the self at the center. And and one of the things that's that's developed even in our history that we need to be aware of that has produced this really is the enlightenment, okay? So we're gonna do like, brief kind of cliff notes version of the enlightenment for just a second because I think it's important when Rene Descartes who is the father of the, of the enlightenment he kind of gave birth to the enlightenment when he came up with the conclusion I think therefore I am or it could also be he said I doubt therefore I am and again cliff notes version of this, but what Descartes was trying to understand was how do I know truth? How do I even know that I myself exist? And one of the things he concluded is if, okay, if I was being tricked into thinking that I was real by like some evil genie or demon, they were tricking me into thinking that I am real, then I wouldn't doubt that I was being tricked because I'd be tricked, right? I'd be deceived. So the fact that I can doubt my reality means that I am real. And so, and therefore, I think or I doubt, therefore I am. And so while this gave birth to the Enlightenment, and there's some great things that came out of the Enlightenment, some great discoveries and understandings and rationality that came out of the Enlightenment, it also, the downside is that it threw fuel on the fire for affirming to us that the self is the center of reality. The, rea- the reality of the world is born in my mind. I am, uh, it's, it's why we get statements like this, I am living my truth. That's where statements like that come from. That's a post-enlightenment, post-Descartes statement. I'm living my truth. Truth comes from inside my mind, inside of me. But the Bible says something very different. It says that you aren't the final judge of truth. You're not the final arbiter of truth. Truth doesn't come out of you. In fact, truth, objective truth originates outside of us. So instead of I think, therefore I am, Christianity says God speaks, therefore I am. I am because God speaks. The ultimate source of truth and beauty and goodness is outside of me and because of that, God has the privilege to rule over me. He's established here in the very opening pages of Scripture as the authority. And as Israel is thinking about these other gods, this God in the book of Genesis is presented as a very different God because the other gods of the other nations are gods that they made, that they made, that they crafted. So so the, the nations preceded that God. You see that? So they can carve it however they want it to be. They can manipulate their gods however they want it to be. They can change the morals or the standards of their God. But the Bible says that is far from the case. The God of the Bible is presented as, as one who is the author of life. And this is important for understanding all that comes following from the Bible, which is that the author of life knows how life works best. Because he is the preexistent God. Because he is the originator the author of our lives knows how life works best. He is before all things. Um, you know, I was a campus minister at the University of Texas for seven years, and sometimes I'd meet with a student who'd say something like, I don't believe in 
God, I believe in the Big Bang. Like, I don't believe God created the world. I believe in the Big Bang. And like the kind of snarky side of me wanted to be like, you mean a moment where there was suddenly a rapid creation over a very short period of time? That's what you believe? Like that is not, that is not anti what we see happening in the Bible. It's not incompatible with Christianity. But Genesis 1, here's the thing. Genesis 1 is not trying to answer questions about the Big Bang or not the Big Bang. What it's establishing is who made all things that it was God. And so the challenge for the atheist, the atheist version of the Big Bang specifically, the challenge for the atheist version of the Big Bang is where did the stuff that banged come from? Like where did that material that came to that teeny tiny point and then banged come from? And you know, one kind of new explanation, creative explanation is the multiverse. You know, that, that this universe came from another universe, and there's lots of universes out there. And that's, an, I mean, that's interesting, and again, that might be true. Like there could be, maybe there is a multiverse, but even still, if there's a multiverse, something has to be at the beginning of that that made that multiverse. You see, you kinda can't get away from there having to be something that was original at the beginning. It's what Aristotle talks about when he says that there must be an unmoved mover. That something or someone had to be at the beginning of all creation. And so the challenge for the atheists is that they have to put their faith in the mystery that somehow matter came to be. And for the God believer, whether a Christian or just a theist, but for the God believer, they get to put their faith in the mystery that God has always existed. And that he was able to make everything out of nothing. The atheist has to believe that something came out of nothing. And here, here's the deal. Both of those people, the atheist and the God believer, has to put their faith in something. You just can't get around it. I'm sorry, you're human. Like, that's kind of the deal for us is we have to either put our faith in the reality that just somehow matter was there and we think maybe it banged and now we're here. Or somehow God was there and he spoke and now we're here. And I would challenge you, like which of those is, which of those is more reasonable? Where do you want to plant your flag? In the mysteries of a divine being and a divine God? Or do you actually want to give like divine hope into something coming out of nothing? Which actually isn't very rational if you think about it. What I would argue, and particularly if you're not a Christian man, I'm really glad you're here. Um, and I hope you'll, you'll, you'll stick with me. Um, but what I, what I would ask you to consider and what the Bible is asking us to consider is that we would look at the power of God as it's demonstrated in this world and consider if it's worth believing in him. So that's my second point, the power of God, the powerful one. He made everything out of nothing by his words. So at our, at our fundamental level, we are made of God words. God language. And 
this is not an anti-science thing to say. I actually think Christianity in, in many ways is, is very pro-science. In fact, science was initially built on the assumption that a rational being made our world and gave it order and laws and patterns that could be discovered and measured and explored. And science in many ways reveals the beauty and the order and the creativity and majesty and power of God. Um, many of you may have heard of the Human Genome Project. It was conducted back in the 1990s. Um, to this day, it remains the world's largest collaborative biological project ever. The, the project sought to identify, map, and sequence all the genes of the human genome, both from a physical and a functional standpoint. And um, they found that there are, this is crazy, they found that there are more than 3 billion nitrogen bases organized in precise order, packaged in 23 pairs of chromosomes, and the work was absolutely groundbreaking. And the head of the Human Genome Project, the one who was kind of overseeing all the science, everything that was going into this, was a man, is a man named Francis Collins. And Dr. Collins has been a scientific advisor for both Republican and Democratic presidents, and he, uh, he wrote a book where he recounts what this was like for him on a personal and even on a spiritual level to be over this human genome project that brought about the most magnificent discoveries of biological discoveries of the human um, map ever. So I want to, this is kind of an extended uh, quote from his book, but I, I want to read it to you. He, he writes that... Um, about the experience of seeing the president, President Clinton at the time, announce the discovery and all that they had learned in this project. So this is uh, from the book. Today, said President Clinton, we are learning the language in which God created life. We are gaining ever more awe for the complexity, the beauty, and the wonder of God's most divine and sacred gift. And now here's Dr. Collins. Was I... A rigorously trained science taken aback at such a blatantly religious reference by the leader of the free world at such a moment as this. Was I tempted to scowl or look at the floor in embarrassment? No, not at all. In fact, I had worked closely with the president's speechwriter in the frantic days just prior to this announcement and had strongly endorsed the inclusion of this paragraph. When it came time for me to add a few words of my own, I echoed this sentiment. It's a happy day for the world. It's a humbling day for me and awe-inspiring to realize that we have caught the first glimpse of our own instruction book, previously known only to God. Dr. Collins continues, says, what was going on here? Why would a president and a scientist charged with announcing a milestone in biology and medicine, feel compelled to invoke a connection with God. Aren't the scientific and spiritual worldviews antithetical? Or shouldn't they at least avoid appearing in the East Room together? What were the reasons for invoking God in these two speeches? Was this poetry, hypocrisy, a cynical attempt to curry favor from believers or to disarm those who might criticize this study of the human genome as reducing humankind to machinery? No, not for me. Quite the contrary. For me, the experiencing, the experience, y'all, this is the director of the whole program. For me, for me, 
The experience of sequencing the human genome and uncovering this most remarkable of all texts was both a stunning scientific achievement and an occasion of worship. Friends, Christianity is not anti-science. God made it. He made everything. It's why what Paul says in Romans 1, 20, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. What he's saying is all of the creation of the world is proclaiming that there is one who's created it. Just look at it, study it, explore it. And the more and more that we look and study and explore, we find that it's not, it's not simpler, it's more complex, it's more intricate. It all holds together in ways that are kind of dumbfounding, okay? But we're, we're gonna dip our toe into like the dumbfounding pool for just a second, okay? Um, because I think it, so many scientific discoveries point to the, an incredible fine-tuning of our bodies, but also the universe and how it's been designed. So we're gonna talk about numbers for a second, and it's real easy to kind of like hear big numbers and glaze over. Stay with me. Here we go. The gravitational constant. The gravitational constant was explained by Newton, is utilized by Einstein in his theory of relativity. Of relativity. So this is a number that if it was off by just a teeny tiny fraction of a bit, our universe couldn't exist. Now let's talk about how, how infinitesimal this fraction is. If I, told, if I told you if it was off by like one in a million, the universe wouldn't exist, that would be pretty amazing, right? One in a million. And a million is a number that we throw around a lot and maybe don't think about how big that number actually is. So just to kind of illustrate how big the number a million is, one million seconds ago was 11 days ago. It's a long time. If you started counting, it would take you 11 days to count to a million, if you're counting one second at a time. Okay, one million. So if I said if it was one million, thought that'd be kind of crazy. What if I told you that the gravitational constant has to be exact to one trillionth? That's one with 12 zeros behind it. And that if it was off by one trillionth of a, of a decimal, then the universe couldn't exist. You know how long a trillion seconds ago was? 32,000 years. Not 32,000 days, 32,000 years. That's how big a trillion is. But here's the deal. The gravitational constant doesn't have to be so precise that, it's, that if it was like 0 .0012 instead of 1, 3, like that, it, it's, not that, it's not 12 zeros in front, okay? It's 32 zeros. That's the gravitational constant. One in 10 to the 32nd. And if it was off by one, the universe couldn't exist. That's how fine-tuned our universe is. But it doesn't stop there. That one's like kind of small potatoes. Let me tell you about the electromagnetic force versus the force of gravity. If that was off by one part in 10 to the 37th, the universe couldn't exist. But that's small potatoes. Because if the expansion rate of the universe was off by one part in 10 to the 55th, 55 zeros, if it was off by one in 10 to the 55th, the universe couldn't exist. 
if the mass density of the universe was off by one in 10 to the 59th, 59 zeros, the universe couldn't exist. But here's the big daddy, you ready? The cosmological constant, if it was off by one in 10 to the 120th, 120 zeros, and if that, after that 120 zeros, it was 0 0.02 instead of 0 0.01, the universe couldn't exist. Now put all those things together Multiply all those things together and put and throw the human genome project in there with it. The heavens declare the glory of God. Like all, all throughout the universe and creation, God is welcoming us to see how creative and wise and fine-tuned he has made his world. As I was looking at these numbers, I was listening to, um, there's a, this music project where, um, of all the psalms that I've been listening to a lot, it's by a band called Poor Bishop Hooper. Totally suggest to you, they're really great. But Psalm 14 came on while I was reading this and planning for my sermon. And the, the woman singing, um, just began singing, the fool says in their heart, there is no God. And as I'm looking at the cosmological constant and the gravitational constant and how fine-tuned everything has to be, this voice comes out and says, the fool says there is no God. And that is right. I mean, if, if you wanted God to, to just be as convincing as possible, God, that this world couldn't exist unless there was a creator, just be as convincing as possible, make a creation that convinces us. Could he make a more convincing creation than this one? That... As we discover, and who knows all the other like, intricacies that we, have, that we don't even know about yet, right? This is all stuff that we've just kind of recently found out about, but has always been true for all the years of human existence. It's always been true. And the more that we learn about God's world, the more that we see his divine fingerprints all over it. But here's the thing. Paul also quotes from Psalm 14, the psalm that says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And when he quotes it, he's talking about people in the church. He's talking about us. He's talking about the people in Rome, actually, the Roman Christians. Psalm, 4, or psalm 14 gets quoted in Romans 3. And in Romans 3, 9 and 10, Paul says this, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so the bad news for me, the bad news for all of us is that we don't seek after God. That he couldn't make it more plain to us that he is a creator and that we've been made and yet we don't seek after him. But the good news of this story and the good news of the story of the Bible, final point, is that we have a present God. He is present. And we see that here in this passage. In verse 2, the earth is without form and void. It's chaotic. It's chaotic nothingness, whatever that means. That's what's being described here. But God's response to the chaos is to draw near and to be present. It says the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This Hebrew word spirit, ruach, means wind 
or breath. The breath of God, the spirit of God came right down close over all the chaos and into the darkness and the chaos, God speaks light and life. Now think about Israel again. They're in the wilderness. They're in the darkness. Should we go back? Should we go back to Egypt? They've got gods that don't bring them out into the wild and leave them in the dark. They're eating. Let's go to, let's go to Egypt or let's go to Assyria and, and go worship Molech or like they're... they're they have this big, strong army and they're productive and doing well. Let's go there. In the darkness, God is present. And think about how God is even present with Israel in the darkness, in the wilderness. How does he show up day after day after day? Pillar of cloud by day. And when it's dark and in the night, in the wild wilderness, God shows up as a pillar of fire. And light. God always is bringing light into the darkness. And with that life, he's bringing life. He always does that. It's his pattern throughout all of scripture that when our lives feel chaotic and uncontrollable, that that is when God shows up. And it's no surprise then it's no surprise in that he continues to show up in the Lord Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. Listen, it's, it can be really, um, it can be great to know somebody powerful, but until you know they're trustworthy, it's not actually really that helpful. A lot of y'all know that I um, Recently had surgery on my right ear to restore um, hearing. I lost hearing back in September. I got a cochlear implant. It's going really well, still progressing and learning. My ear won't hear very normally, Lord willing, until maybe September. Uh, thanks for your prayers for that. But I want to tell you really quickly about when, uh, when I went to my pre-op appointment, my wife Chrissy came with me, and we were supposed to be my doctor, but I had... I had a really great doctor and he was really busy and had to go see somebody else. So one of his assistants came to the pre-op appointment and I had met my doctor, so I kind of felt fine about it. But my wife was like, kind of want to meet the guy before he carves open your head, right? And so she kind of was feeling unsettled about it. And so the day of my operation came, we go to the surgery center and the nurse comes out and it's like, is there anything that you need before? And, and Chris said, I would really love to meet the doctor. I know he's busy, but can I meet him before he cuts into my husband? Absolutely. And when, when we met the doctor, it, it totally changed the experience. To see his face, to hear his assurance that it was going to be okay. Even though we, we already knew that he was powerful and an expert and knew what he was doing, but to see his face, it changes things. Right. God is a God who in Genesis 1, his face comes over the chaos and he speaks light and life into it. And when John, the Apostle John, retells the creation story, he helps us see that it was Jesus who was there at the creation and Jesus, Jesus who steps into our chaos and our dark to bring light and life. In the beginning was the word, 
And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. No one seeks after God. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Jesus steps into the chaos of our world, the chaos of our pain, of our suffering, of the wilderness that we're in. God is not just a powerful pre-existent God that you should like take his word for it and like look at all the creation and see how powerful and magnificent he is. He is all those things, but he also is Emmanuel, God with us, present with us in our suffering. And he's for you. So my question to you is, what are you putting your faith in? Are you putting your faith in material, just having always existed? Are you looking to other gods where the grass may be as greener? Let's remember the story and consider putting our faith and trust in the author of life who draws near, who's for our good, who took on flesh so that we could become children of God. If you haven't yet believed in him, put your trust in him. You've got to put your trust in something. You have to. What are you going to believe in? Consider Jesus, the one who's become flesh so that you could be God's child. Let me pray. Father, um, we do give you thanks and praise for the magnificence of your creation. Um, Our minds are too small to even understand the numbers and the constants and all of the marvelous things that you have done. And and yet we thank you that you have revealed yourself in that way. And that mostly that you've revealed yourself through your son, Jesus, who became a man and remains a man and intercedes for us even now. And we pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, help us to put our trust in him and him alone. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.